folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Crap Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. At the end of the day, if you can't win your brand in your home state, how are you gonna really do it somewhere else? That was my problem. Plus we had the money to put an army of sales team there, plus the marketing dollars to do it and promote it, we couldn't make it work. Jason Santamaria and his partner Chris Doyle started a brewery in Atlanta back in 2014. They called it Second Self and they ran it that way. The brewery was a creative expression of the flavors and experiences that had shaped their lives. What you'll hear is how as the market grew and evolved, so did Second Self, pivoting to find new puddles of profitability, struggling against changing consumer preferences, and finally ending up as a primarily contract facility. I sat down with Jason a week or so before he and Chris closed their doors to hear the whole story. Jason shares how they were inspired to start their brewery, what it was like to build it into a thriving business, and the emotions he has presiding over its dismantlement. This is a story of Second Self Beer Company in Atlanta, Georgia. Much love to the co-founder, Jason Santamaria, for sharing it and teaching us how not to start a damn brewery. All right, Jason, I want to welcome you to the show, and thanks so much for you sharing your insights and experiences. Some slips and misses in there for sure, but we're going to get into a lot of really important business of craft beer information, and your story is unique and uh, interesting, and so we got a lot to cover. So thank you for taking the time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so before we get started and get too deep into it, let me know who you are. Like, How did this start? Who were you as a kid? What were you going to be when you grow up? As a kid, yeah, my... My family were immigrants, so my grandfather had a restaurant. I was a little four-year-old running around the restaurant. <laughs> Loved food, always been in food my whole life. Grew up around Georgia, around suburbs of the city. Went to Georgia Tech, which is in midtown Atlanta. So I was in Atlanta for most of my, my whole life. In college, I actually paid for college at a catering company. So I had my own business then. So kind of an, always kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, trying to do things a little different. Actually, my business partner technically worked for me at that time. So it was kind of fun. <laughs> Uh, we met in college. I got into beer in college, like most people do. It's uh, something that you drink. Uh, Samuel Smith is what changed my mind. What like beer wasn't just yellow beer. It's a funny story. We we actually did trivia every Monday. Simpsons trivia. Huge Simpsons fan. We'd win every week, and the rule was we had to use our winnings on beer. We couldn't use it on food because you're in college. <laughs> and so one week, my friend Brian was up there. I was like, I have a fifty dollar gift card, and only it's only me. So I can only drink so much Natty Light. So me and my friend Alex went up and. Uh, basically said, Barkeep, give us the most expensive beer, you know, Sam Smith's Oatmeal Stout. And that was the beer that changed my life. That was like, oh, beer has flavor. Beer is complex. It's not just yellow light beer. That then sparked a whole rabbit hole. So going down in the craft beer, this is like 2000, 2003, 2004. So craft beer was there, but not, not what it is now. You know, we had two, three breweries uh, in the city at the time that were making craft beer. That was it. And then... Yes. I mean, we had Atlanta Brewing, Sweetwater, 
uh, Dogwood Brewing, which is now closed, and then uh, Terrapin will be open by then as well. So, and then those are all the ones that at least I can get my hands on. So I loved cooking. I got to love beer. So brewing became kind of the next step. Started brewing with me and a couple friends. Homebrewers. We we started winning some awards. Kind of known for making weird flavor combinations because I, I use a lot of culinary background to make the flavors. Yeah, it was a lot of fun doing that. I love mixing the new stuff. And then, you know, going forward a little bit, I, I, I want, took the first job out of college as far away as possible because I'd always been in Georgia. <laughs> so I moved to San Diego and uh, loved it and got to know craft beer a lot more there because, you know, Stone, Ballast Point, Green Flash, all those were there and really dug my teeth into that. So I took the job out there, which is fun. And then it was a consulting job. So my first gig was actually in Atlanta. So after <laughs> moving out there, trying to get away from here, I had to start commuting, flying every week back and forth to Atlanta. Did it for six months. Then they renewed me for a year. And so I said, I'm not going to just keep flying, paying San Diego rent if I can only get the beach for one day a week. So I need a place to live. My um, Who's now my business partner? Need a roommate. So we moved in together and started just brewing tons of beer. And so on the weekends, we'd brew beer, have friends over and make tacos or pizza. And during the week, you know, be consulting, working. So that's where the whole name came from was during the week was my work self and the weekend was my second self, alter ego, call it what you will. So that was, that's where the whole genesis came from was that, that. Was it and just then, one um, of these uh, food driven beer weekends? Someone said, dude, you should open a brewery. No, we we started talking about it. We really wanted like a brew pub because I mean I want I loved food, but then we started going to a bunch of brew pubs and here and around, and no one was doing both food and beer well. Mm-hmm. So figured let's pick one and do that well. And so we started looking at more of the brewery model. So we went to the CBC in 2010. That was in Chicago, thinking, oh, we'll learn what we need to learn, build a business plan. We could probably open up in like two years. So we went there, realized we knew nothing. And so, you know, spent a year doing research, a year writing a business plan, a year fundraising, and a year building, and then we opened in 2014. Okay. What was the plan? Like at that point, you, you had the name, you had the concept, you obviously had a culinary background, and you, you said you opened in 14? Yep, in 2014, yeah. So in 14, crappers kind of riding high, unique and interesting works. Let's start with the lineup. Like what, what was the focus of the beer? Was it just going to be completely culinary and esoteric or were you trying to do light lagers and everybody's palate pleasing like what was the idea yeah so that was that was a fight from the beginning so i wanted to do culinary stuff from the beginning so we you know we kind of pushed beer pairings so you know i kept saying that you know wine needs to get off the dinner table let's put beer there and so i did a lot of beer dinners when we started you know we launched with four different brands two year rounds two seasonals which was kind of unheard of for anyone here everyone launches like two year rounds and see where it goes and we launched our first seasonal three weeks in like we were just like i want a new i want a new one and i want a new one i want a new one every month which our distributors started hating us pretty quickly because it's fine well but everybody was doing that in 15 i mean you had to to get attention no one was doing that here right you had your staples it was like 15 it started 16 it really started going but yeah people thought we were weird because we're coming up with a new flavor every month the distributor's like i don't want to create new SKUs that much even though you know it's just copy an excel spreadsheet thing but yeah so that was the idea is every month something new i had 50 recipes banked that several that were lots of them that we won awards on so we kind of just started there and then of course we're making new ones as we went along too were those your homebrew awards or you won awards, awards. Your- we won awards once we opened as well at that point that's that's what we had and then 
then about a year before we opened, I guess two years before we opened, uh, we did kind of, Chris and I kind of split paths. I stayed in my day job. He went and got a certificate at the America's Brewers Guild and then started working at Sweetwater so he could be kind of Mr. Operations, as we call him. And that's how we kind of split the business up was that I was going to be kind of business development, sales, marketing, and he was going to be operations. Did you guys actually have that kind of partnership agreement where you split yeah, up the Yeah, that roles? was in our operating agreement. You know, so you have everyone operations ends up reporting to Chris, everyone else reported to me. Eventually, I became the top, and then he kind of kind of branched out from there. Um, but that was the plan at the beginning, kind of like two two heads of two separate groups. Kind of divide and conquer the workload. Did that seem to make sense at that point? Did he, he was able to handle more of the production, and you could run, not have to kind of think about it? Yeah, and um, I kept playing. So like I kept coming up with new ideas. Very early on, it was apparent that Chris is a better brewer than I am, although I, I come up with bigger ideas. So I like to say, I'll come up with the idea, do the first pilot, and then Chris would kind of take it, hone it, and perfect it, and then work on the next idea. <laughs> okay. So the, to me, that's the fun part. What I didn't want to do at a restaurant was cook the same dish all day, every day. Because so I did that. I knew it wasn't for me. Just like we couldn't call ourselves brewmasters because we just started. Couldn't call myself an executive chef if I just start my own restaurant. Like I think it's a, a title that is earned, not given, like in Kung Fu. You can't just be like, hey, I'm, I'm a Kung Fu master because I took classes. I called myself Brew Dude in the beginning for the same reason. I just had this like, I, I couldn't, yeah. even head brewer sounded stupid to me because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So Yeah, uh, my official title still is Beer Architect. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, two kind of big questions on the startup that I always want to get into is one is going to be the location, the rent structure and all that, but then also your financing. And so... You guys, you did a bank loan, you did some investors. The question I always have is, did you raise enough and did you plan enough? You know, almost always the answer is no, but like, but in what way was it not enough? Yeah, big no. Mostly an SBA loan, how we got it. We did investors as well, kind of to get operations going. We had two really big hiccups right before we started that really kind of killed our cash flow, which is so essential for small businesses. So one, we got through all the drawings, all the prep and everything. And then the service going to the building, electrical service, was set up as what's called Delta, which is a different type of service versus a three-phase service. So that was like a 60 grand change that we had to do that was not in a budget anywhere. Wow. So it got pulled from soft things like marketing. Yeah, right. <laughs> because if we don't have beer, you can't sell beer. And then our distributor was like, oh, this beer is going to be great. I need you to make, we had 20 barrel tanks. So I was like, I want you to make 40 barrels of your seasonals and 60 barrels of your year rounds to start. And I was like, that's a lot of beer. But okay, great. You're bullish on this. If you're buying great. it. <laughs> yeah, you're buying it. So cool. They had projections for the next few months. They signed off on it. We made all this beer. We delivered it. And a month in, they're like, oh, that's a lot of beer. We're not going to order anything for like two months. Like, Cool. So made a lot of beer, made more beer, and then sat on it. Just watched that cash just... <laughs> I think that's a pretty consistent mistake, so I wouldn't uh, be too hard on yourself, but that means... You know, I, and, you know, I've talked to other people, it's happened too, but you know, so we had to do like a, a quick, small raise amongst our investors to you know get some more cash to get going. And that was kind of, yeah, that was the first like four months of our opening was that catastrophe at the end <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things I love about this podcast is I get to learn new things too. And I have never yeah. encountered the Delta Electric. How would you even, if someone's looking at a building today, like how would they even know to look for that is that something unique yeah it's unique so before we were here so the pedigree of our building all the hooters potato salad and was made here so <laughs> the just the potato salad <laughs> just the potato salad so this guy apparently made it for 15 years for hooters hooters said hey we're going to do an rfp to find a new person and he just like straight up closed his business he's like you're my biggest client i'm not doing this and then just that was it 
<laughs> so apparently that was the standard in the 80s hmm. um, when he moved in here. I don't know. We've not encountered any equipment we've ever looked at since then. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that. It's higher voltage. It had a 460 voltage. More efficient if you're doing really big electrical things. Chris can get into the specifics there. He knows He knows more of that stuff. So, I, try, right. I try not too much. <laughs> wow, foreshadowing. I do plan to talk to Chris at some point, so we will right, I'll put right, that on right. the list. So, and so the other question is the building. Like, how did you guys select the building? How did that rent process work? And then, long story short, what mistakes did you make on the, on the lease? So. Yeah, we wanted to be on the east side of town, which is where we kind of grew up, and and we're in this kind of Decatur is the city there. You know, a couple of breweries are there, like three taverns. We wanted to be there. The locations and rent structure didn't work. We found a couple buildings, but they were small and didn't have a lot of room for expansion. And at the time, Georgia didn't allow direct sales to consumers. So the taproom model was off the table. So you can have a tap room, you can you can sell a ticket or a, a glass and give people free beer up to 36 ounces per person per day. So that was a revenue stream, but it wasn't your it couldn't be your main revenue stream because you want to do so much. The business plan had to be distribution. So you had to have a Good footprint, good ability to expand if needed. And so those are all the things in mind when looking for it. So when we the places we found in Decatur were just kind of too small or too far away from where people would be. And then so we started looking around. We actually looked at a city called Chambly, which is kind of just north of Atlanta, still in the perimeter. And we changed the laws in Chambly to allow brewing because it wasn't a designated usage for hmm. space. So we found a building we wanted, went through that process, took three months, then they rezoned the building we wanted to not allow that usage because they wanted after more, that after that so they wanted less industrial in the downtown area they've since changed that of course but at the time they wanted us to get further away from the downtown area because we we're having industrial brewing you know mm-hmm. so we third place we looked was the west side which is where we are now and you know we i picked so this complex called Logan Circle Industrial Complex, this is where Dogwood Brewing was, which is Atlanta's first brewery, first, first craft brewery. So I wanted to look at that space specifically because it was available. And I thought it'd be neat because A, it had it had to have the infrastructure needed for a brewery. And then B, it'd be kind of fun to give that space a second self. Yeah. Always trying to tie that in however I can. So we went and saw that space and you know, I walk in, the floor drains had been filled with concrete, <laughs> the everything had been changed. So it's going to be a gut and redo anyway. So I told the landlord, like, this is kind of not what we're looking for. Told him what we're looking for. And that's when he mentioned this other this space that we're at now. It's like, this is about to come up. The guy's moving. He did food manufacturing there. So it might be a great fit. And it ended up being a good fit. But, you know, we were mostly looking at what we needed to make beer at, not necessarily the cool hip space. Because at the time, breweries were always in industrial complexes. You had to want to go to breweries. You had to drive there. And that's still the case here. You know, we don't get signage at the end of the street. It's been a fight for nine years to get, you know, just people know that we exist here. There's nothing walkable here. It's only industrial or, or other commercial places. Not, there's no retail on the street besides us. Not the best location. Fast forward, you know, a couple of years ago, they opened up a food hall because those are new and novel mm-hmm. uh, you know, in this country. You can see it from our front door, promised to connect us to that, but they never did. And then so you, you have to walk a mile around oh. the whole complex to get there. That has basically sucked most of our customers away because, you know, we don't have 25 food vendors here, two breweries and a distillery. It's just us. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, yeah. so, you, so you think that had you had some sort of food component in the beginning it would have helped 
I don't know. I mean, because we've we've always partnered with food trucks and and people. Because again, part of part of the ethos at Second Self is is I want to help others start up. So we've always partnered with small food vendors, food trucks to have people here, and we've been rotating. And you know, we do food pairings frequently and and everything like that. So we've always had some food here. But I think it's people right now. I mean, 2023 versus 2014. People want choices. People want, you know, why do I want your taco truck and your beer when I can have 25 different choices and everybody gets what they want and yeah, want, you know, my group can have whatever they want. So let's talk about the lease on the building. Did you guys negotiate that yourself? Did you have a broker? Like, how did you? Yeah, we had a, a, both a broker and a lawyer do that. A great negotiation. We didn't have a personal guarantee, which was awesome. That'll come Especially now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in 2013, we signed the lease, moved in in 20 at the end of 13, 14. And in 2015, we started canning. Cans is great. We we're keeping like two days of inventory at our, at our distributor. Needed to expand. Got the space next to us in 2015. And started building out a canning line and everything there. So the, the landlord was good at the time. Uh, we had a couple of renewals baked in. That expansion changed our renewal date. So actually, our mm-hmm. renewal is next May, which is our last one. So the the other thing looming here is that while you know even, even if we were open until next May, they've already told us our rent's going up at least four x. Four. We had a four. Yeah. You win. So, there was a cidery I interviewed from the peninsula in San Francisco, and there was went up three, which I thought was insane. That's <laughs> four. Yeah, that's untenable. Like who, who can like yeah. what kind of business would be able to afford that? I'm actually curious what you think could go in there at that point at that rent rate. Yeah, not with eighteen thousand square feet. I mean, that's a I, lot of rent. I don't I get mean, it. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, so we we you know we came in here in thirteen. Half this industrial complex was empty, so we got it for a song. So that's part of it is that it was under market at the time and their master plan because the landlord that owns this building also owns that big food hall and that development. The master plan is to tear this building down in 2030. So I think part of it is let's get you out of here and tear it down sooner. But they can't tell me that. But that's just Jason's guess. Yeah. Yeah, Your speculation, which could be very accurate. But I don't know for sure. (laughs) But. But uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit. So or what do I would normally talk about later? So in, if the rent were to go up 4X, could you possibly pay it? it with your business? And this is the, kind of a thing that I'm looking at with a lot of these breweries. Like as we get to a point, you can only sell your pints for so much. You can only distribute so many cans at this low margin per case. Like what could you do to 4X your rent payment? Get a smaller space. You just have to shrink it basically? <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually with the amount of, foot traffic we get, I don't think there's any way you can make that work unless we were at full production capacity. Yeah, at full production capacity, maybe. Like, because we're leveraging the space to make that much product, we could do it. But, you know, that's two to three times what we were doing, at least at, at, at the time of closure. <laughs> yeah. So. No, that's that's a lot. So yeah, your rent going from 12K to 50K is pretty substantial. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah. what was the size you guys started with before you expanded the 18,000 square feet, like when you first opened? So at 9,000, they, they mirror each and other. And then you said so. two. Okay. And um, what size brew house did you put in? Uh, 10 barrel brew house. Did you have like so, an idea at that point what your production output was supposed to be, which I maybe is more on Chris's side, but um, what your plan was and how much you were going to make every year? Yeah, of course. So we had the business plan for all that. You know, part of, part of the plan too was always building in, we built in contract manufacturing from the beginning. Did you? Know, our, our original 
original plan was to be contracted out to kind of test the waters, make sure everything, you know, worked. And, you know, what we found was not a lot of space that, to do that. And the ones that did have space required us to buy tanks or get put like a hundred grand up front. And basically like, if we're going to raise that kind of money and not have space, let's just raise more and have a space. And that's, that's how we are here. So part of me was like, let's keep some capacity for others to help start up. Again, going back to Second Self being living your dream, helping others, all part of that. So the original plan was to get to kind of 900 barrels pretty quickly, and then 1,700 and then 2,400 were kind of the steps that we were looking at, with the goal of getting to 4,000, kind of the most at this space, given that brew house size. And that was... That was going to be with other contracted brands in there was your idea. I'm curious about this. You were considering not purchasing a brew house in the beginning and contract brewing somewhere else. You just couldn't find anybody, any way to make that work. The closest one I could find at the time was Lazy Magnolia, which is in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Carolinas, Tennessee, called every brewery I could. Virginia had some space, but again, the minimums were super high. hundred barrels per brand for a new brewery. that's that's a lot. Yeah, that'd be tough. But unfortunately, too, then the shipping it in, like there was a brewery in Texas that did that. They they contracted their lowest margin beer out of a place in Florida, shipped it all the way back to Texas. I just, you just eat up all your money. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, a brewery here did that too. Their their lowest margin beer, they moved to Florida. Probably the same brewery because it's that giant contract brewery in the middle of Florida. And the same thing. And so I understand. I want to get into kind of how it built up and like what the growth looked like. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's hear how Second Self tried to hit that 4,000 barrel mark. Okay, cool. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. So I want to hear about how it grew. So we kind of went from 9,000 feet to 18,000 feet. Obviously, distribution grew. Talk to me about kind of the buildup. Like you started with a certain lineup. Did that change? Did that evolve? And what were some of the wins you guys experienced? Yeah. So the the two flagships we launched with, one was Thai wheat. So it was a ginger, lemongrass, and galanga wheat. So kind of spicy, fun beer. And then Red Hop Rye, which is a red rye IPA. We always assumed Red Hop Rye would be the biggest beer we had. But very quickly, Thai wheat became the number one seller. And it's still been the number one seller up until today. I mean, so it was never the intention to have that be a wheat flagship and it's super unheard of in the beer craft beer world now to have a wheat beer as your flagship if you're not like Blue Moon. But anyway, so that was that. Like I said, Seasonal is kind of launching every month. And then around March, yeah, March 2015, we got into cans. So we were keg only. 
that in the beginning, and then we started doing mobile canning because that was like a new thing at the time. So we had the two; those are the two beers that we can. The seasonals we kept in keg, and you know, the, what I like to say is, what the mobile canner would hook up, in goes beer, out comes can, and all your profit. So we make. We'd make cans, we'd sell cans, but we wouldn't make money because the amount that you pay for that is, is astronomical. Everybody experiences that, but most people don't realize it until after having done it. When did you figure out that all the profit was going out? Oh, three months. Within three months, I was like, "This isn't." We either have to make more kegs, basically, or get our own canning line. You know, one of our investors saw where this was going as well, so he was a good proponent to help me kind of push this a little faster than I thought we needed to. So, you know, that year. That was the focus. It was just a new business plan, can focused, production focused, and expansion. 2015, we did that. So we, we built out plan drawings to build it. Because our tasting room was also in that 9,000 square feet. We had 1,200 square feet for the brew house and hot side kind of operations, tanks, everything. And then just next to it was the tasting room. So you saw the tanks. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest complaints from our tasting room was that it was just hot because we don't have mm. air conditioning in the brew house. And in Georgia, it gets real hot. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's 95 degrees and then we boil water for eight hours and then it's hot and humid. <laughs> so air, air conditioning, the tasting room there is just not, not something that could be done. So when we did the expansion, we wanted to have walled off good AC kind of stuff. And that was that. So like the very, the first few months, I mean, we really were literally keeping days of inventory in stock like that entire year. We couldn't keep anything in stock. And so it was a good year, good problem to have, as they say. So we worked to get, so we doubled our so we had 420 primary fermenters that were 20 barrels and two bright tanks. And then we added that row of 30. So four 30s primary and then two 30 brights. And then adding our own canning line, DPAL, all that kind of stuff. So we pretty quickly were able to go, grow pretty fast. So 2016 is when we that was live. And so that's actually up until then, I kept my day job. So second self was still my second self. <laughs> until 2016. So I oversaw, I left my other job, oversaw the expansion and the growth from there. Okay. What do you attribute that growth to? So like you guys obviously opened up and I agree with you that having a slightly spicy wheat beer is a unique flagship. So did the market just right time, right place? Did you guys do some crazy distributor incentives? Like how'd you get that growth? Yeah. So the <laughs> term and distributor incentive was something I didn't really hear of until <laughs> you know 2015. So we, we did our at the end of 2014, you know, the distributor said, oh, we need you to do your annual business plan. Uh, and they just you know, use all these acronyms. So we need your ABP and your, you know, all your you know, money and all stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll give you my plan what I'm plan making on brewing, but I don't know what you mean by incentive plans. We've never talked about this until now. And yeah, so the whole incentive thing was new to me and how much money you have to pay to have someone make money on your beer is a foreign concept, one I don't really agree with. But, you know, maybe that's why I'm in this position. We didn't do incentives until 2016 was our first incentive. So we were hitting that growth organically. So we were just a unique and different. I think having having a new seasonal was very helpful. We did have a sales rep from the beginning. So that was good. Having someone always on the streets. That was something kind of unique for smaller breweries. Again, coming from sales, I kind of knew the importance of having a salesperson out there. Do you remember um, like 15, 16, how many breweries were in Atlanta area at that time? That's when it started. It didn't really, the floodgates didn't open until 2017. So in 2017 is when the law changed that allowed direct-to-consumer sales. That's when it changed so you can have just a tap room, sell pints over the bar and make money that way. But until then, you know, you had to be a production brewery. So it was still pretty slow growth. The unique beers were there. We started doing some seasonal cans in 2016. So our Goza and 
our mole porter, which is our first seasonal. So based on a family mole recipe, I created a mole porter. And then we did gozes before, before like anyone else kind of did around here, which is, it, it, we've joked that we were six months ahead of the curve almost the entire time. Cause like that red rye IPA, super popular later, yeah. <laughs> those just became popular later. One of the other three launch beers, we had a, a session IPA. People were just confused. Why you want to, why do you have a four and a half percent IPA? This, this is weird. And then a Saison, which made that sadly that style just has, has gone, mm-hmm. but it's still my favorite style of beer. Yeah. That's primarily what we made at my brewery is more mixed culture and Saison stuff. And so, yeah, we, yeah. I watched it's it more, die and watched my brewery go with it. So, yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah, that's still my favorite. It's still what I make when I make beer. I still just make crazy weird Saisons. <laughs> <laughs> was the distributor part of this growth? Were they like kind of really helping? Yeah, you guys? So, yeah, they were part of it. Yeah, they they helped us get into grocery stores, like something that we couldn't do. And you know, they they wanted us to focus on some kind of regular beers, as they said too. So like, not beers with so much stuff in it. So we launched a beer ATL, ATALE uh, for ATL. So that was our first kind of plain pale ale, and that became our number two brand really quickly. And then we had a citrus IPA. Which is just a you know citrus hops, and then we actually threw a little bit of orange peel in there too to kind of just really like make it juicy. And that was in twenty, that was in twenty fifteen. So that's when it started. But that became our third and fourth year round beers. How did you set on your pricing? Like what when you went to the shelf? This this is the most competitive part of craft beer is like selling six packs yep. at the grocery store. Like did you did you change pricing here and there? How did that work? No, uh, we did not. So our, our distributor was very strict on that. It was like this is how much Sweetwater was was the big dog here so like there's how much sweet water charges here's how much you can charge so here's how much we will buy it for and that's what you have to deal with and so when when they took a price hike we could take a price hike that was kind of the nature of it so were you in the same portfolio or the same distributor for Sweetwater? yeah hmm. yeah it's interesting i would think that based on the styles you describe and what i've seen from your brewery that you guys legitimately should be priced higher than Sweetwater, like as far as like the concept and the, the ingredients we, we should and we we played with it a little bit and you know I think people were just super price sensitive at the time. Craft beer had to be $10. Bud Light was 7 or something like that at the time. To be 12 was like, oh, wow, $12. It's going to break the bank. Were you able to raise pricing later? Or, or is it still kind of that same situation you guys are dealing with? Uh, yeah, we're pretty much line price with them, despite you know still? them being like 200 or 300,000 barrels, wherever they're at now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It became a point recently where the distributors like, "Hey, we're just not we're not taking that price." But you know, by then the writing was on the wall, and, and we're, we're selling so little through our Georgia distributor, it didn't really wasn't really worth the fight. As you were kind of learning the system, and you have a rep that's handling it, does your rep handle the whole state, or is it primarily just in Atlanta? Whole state, so statewide. Um, our biggest markets were Georgia. I mean, Atlanta, obviously, and then Savannah, which is a coastal town. Did mm-hmm. pretty well because that's a huge Taiwee town. A lot of tourists there. I think that helped. And then Athens as well. The whole South Georgia did not do well for us. So you managed the sales piece of it. I have some questions for Chris on sort of the production part. I'll ask him in the next interview. But what okay. worked for you as far as like the recipe, the branding? Like what was right and what was wrong um, as far as like what made that work? Yeah. So the, the concept of second self is a little too heady for most people. <laughs> like most people don't understand it until I explain it. We did get second shelf a lot. Which um, is not good. Which, right? which is not good. <laughs> we owned that a couple times. We made shirts that said the H is silent. Uh, and then people would be like, I don't understand what you mean. Then explain it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't get that either. So anyway, we I, I don't know if we're too punny 
or something like that for people. But yeah, the, the concept is to some people don't like it. They don't like to think about their second self. They go to a dark place like who I am when I'm drunk or mm. dark side of me. I've always thought of it as the fun outgoing part or you know that's i've always seen it in a positive way i guess i should say that's more of my outlook in life i should to, to go along with that <laughs> so yeah. um but we won 12 national design awards for our branding and design so you know our logo is two or the s that we use our logo is two twos that create an s i think it looks great and you know every letter had two components to it there's a split so there's always two parts to everything our original designs, I know this is a podcast, but I'll hold up a can so you can see it. You know, everything was kind of a split design, inverse colors. You know, when we looked at, when we're doing the design, I would take the book and just go to the local craft beer store and just stare at like, here's design concept A through F and just say, and hold it up next to all these cans and say, what really stands out compared to everything that's out there? So this vertical split was something that no one was doing at the time. Very quickly after everyone was doing that horizontal split where you kind of mm-hmm. had the bottom head information, top head crazy art. But still to this day, no one does the vertical split. So the idea was to be able to see it from 20 feet across the bar or at the tap handle. It'd be very easy to see. And that works. People we were able to quickly identify who we were and what we were doing. But yeah, the concept itself, though, it's it still eludes a lot of people until I explain it. And they go, that's amazing. <laughs> Just give me another one. Yeah. So did you have a design firm actually do all your design or did you guys do your graphic stuff yourself? So Tech Scrubs was our original designer. He's a personal friend of ours. So he and I designed the first logo that we did not use. But then he worked for a firm called Adrenaline here in Atlanta. You know, they were a company that worked for large customers only and wanted a fun project. So they actually had each designer pitch a company, a local company to work for and text pitched us. <laughs> and so they basically gave us a 90% discount on services because they wanted to have a reference customer that was different than everything else they've ever done. So they had like Honda and Bank of America as customers. So like working with a cool brewery, was fun for their people. Yeah, it shows them and diversity. And that's who did the work and it, it was right. And so, you know, we had a team of people working on it and they helped us build our website, give us materials. Like here's what your sell sheets would look like. A lot of it was, you know, here is the branding for your cans and your logo, but here's some general layouts you can use and, and some rules that you can follow and do yourself so you don't have to pay us hourly to do all this stuff for you. Yeah, and you're still <laughs> within the concept and stuff. Tex remained our designer freelance until he moved and stopped doing freelance. <laughs> so, <laughs> Talk to me about what the good years were like. What were the years you guys were just killing it? When was it growing massively and then like... We'll talk about when it slows down in the next section. 16, 17, and 18 were just like growth, 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 like kept going. And we started contracting decent volume in 17. So it was like we were growing, our contract business was growing, we we're doing soda. So it was super easy. It was just carving and canning. You don't have to pick up fermenters for that. But yeah, so we had like a, a beer, Margarita and Goza. It's a Margarita Goza. And that, that killed it in 17. And that was like just a killer summer for us. And then we launched a beer in 18 called Triforce. It's an IPA with three hops and three malts named after probably you know a famous video game that you might be able to figure out. Absolutely destroyed any of our records. That became our number one beer pretty quickly. And for reasons you might be able to guess, we had to stop making the beer with that name. Mm-hmm. Did that ruin right. the sales? Did it actually affect it when you had to change the name? Yeah, destroyed it. Really? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was very nice. We, we had like six months to kind of transition. It was, so we did, but at the same time, we had a, a local brewery startup 
in the same portfolio who also just dropped massive incentives at our distributor. Mm. And so when basically like as as that beer was on its decline, the other one just took off. And then ever since then, we were never able to get the attention of our distributor. Really? This is 18? Yeah, that was 18. We were locked out of the incentive program. They said there's only one small craft brewery can be part of the program at a time. And they considered us in the same category. And so since their incentives dollars were so high, uh, we weren't allowed to be a part of it. Hmm. So they basically just said, fuck you. We'll drop it off if you sell it and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So was 18 sort of the pinnacle and then it came down from there? Yeah, it came down a little bit. You know, our tasting room started picking up more, which made it for the slack. And then we expanded into Alabama and South Carolina. So, you know, while Georgia declined, we made up for it in other places. And when did you guys start doing contract brewing for other brewers? 18. I think our first first brewery was 18. Small brewery in Tennessee, contract only. They eventually got their own space. So they moved on. And that was kind of always the idea is kind of just be that contract brewery for you until you need something bigger. Did that become lucrative? Was that a part of your business that actually paid bills, I guess? It did. And so, you know, it became more and more of our business. So during the pandemic, it became the only thing that kept going because, you know, there was enough people that needed some work. We always had some contract to do. So we quickly got into non-alcoholic things. So we started making canned coffee and canned tea and soda. In 19, I made the business model switch of, I basically saw that beer was going to be on the decline, seeing the kids these days, quote unquote, <laughs> were going to not be drinking beer. So in 2018, that summer, I started working on uh, hard seltzers. I thought that might be the next big thing. And then they became the next big thing that summer. So I started thinking of the next, next big thing. And so we launched a CBD hemp water brand called Cirrus in 2018. So I took all the flavor development I did for seltzers and just moved them to that project. And so we were one of the first 10 CBD beverages in the country. And so that became a very good business for us as well. So it was a separate company, but it was all co-packed on a second self. So, you know, I got to kind of double dip. Mm-hmm. I got to money on the contract and then also make money on the brand. And so that grew really fast in 19. So we picked up 14 states for Cirrus in 2019. That wasn't under the umbrella of Second Self at that point? It's a separate business? No, separate business. The brand is separate business, but all the contracting happened at Second Self. We had to pay Second Self you know, to do the work. It made standard margin on it, which, you know, again, if other things are declining, here's something else. So, And then in 2019, that did, that was doing so well people were calling us to do their own private labels. So we actually had three celebrities we were going to make private label drinks for, all launching May 2020. And that never happened. (laughs) (laughs) So that sucks. I am curious how you decided to price it. Contracting, like you said in the beginning when you looked, they were all over the board as far as the minimums and costs. And so how did you decide or you guys decide what your contract price was going to be? Just cost plus? Like- so it was all cost plus. So we, I did pricing. Everyone was a unique price. We didn't just say, hey, an IPA is this price. This is a pale ale is this price. We give people a range, of course. But you know, if you want to use Galaxy Hops versus Saz, it's going to be a huge price difference. So you know, we basically would price it out based on ingredients, labor, taxes, and then how much you're going to do. So we would give them pricing. If you do one tank a month, Here's your high price. Two a month goes here, four or more goes substantially lower. That, that was the model and it seemed to work. Did you actually go out and hunt up people that wanted to contract brew with you or did you have people reach out to you? Most were coming to me because they kind of heard that we were doing this. But I, I did do you know some calls and I attended some groups and conferences and stuff like that. I've gone back and forth. I'm still kind of figuring out what I think is the uh, the right business model and craft beer. I, 
I see a lot of value in people, especially when they first start contracting with somebody else first. Yeah. Did you, do you have some success stories of guys that contracted with you and then went on to build their own place or moved on to something bigger? No one has yet. I'll say our largest contract, beer contract, was a brewery in Puerto Rico who basically outgrew us because they were doing so much. Now, th- that was a unique situation. It's too expensive to make a canned beer on the island because everything has to come in. Puerto Rico became our biggest distribution footprint in 2020 and, and beyond uh, up until this year. Um, we made a beer that celebrated the island after Maria. So it was El Valorio. You know, the can, using that vertical split, we tell the story. So half the can is black and white showing the decimation. And as you turn it, it's all color showing the rebirth after the <clears throat> hurricane. We actually canned a whole tanker full of canned water and sent down there. So we kind of did several things we could to, to help to help the island. And we're getting down that we're doing this. So um, they picked up that beer and then that distributor was like, hey, we have these breweries that are just too small to make their own stuff. Can you help us? So we started making beer for two different breweries in Puerto Rico. But the one that grew quickly, they had to contract somewhere else already. The guy was from New Jersey originally, so he actually went back to his old brewery, contracted there. And then they, they grew out of us in a, this year. So it's sad to see them go, but I'm always happy for them. Yeah, obviously they're doing well. So that's good. You guys contracting for other breweries, including your uh, CBD line. Did that help Second Self's footprint for distribution grow? In other words, were you able to combine products on pallets for more efficient shipping and stuff like that and find new markets with it? Um, we were able to for the Puerto Rico, yeah. So, I mean, that's how, how that whole thing happened. So, you know, when you're sending a tanker down by boat, it costs as much to send one pallet as it does to send uh, 16. So the idea was to let's maximize this container every time we send something. That's that story. And then on the NA side, there's a local kind of, craft beverage uh, distribution company that focuses on NA. And so we all use that one. So they pick up for all that brand. So my CBD water, the coffee company, a tea company. So that was able to do that. And I made the connection for those people. But that was always the plan is to kind of use each other to help all of us grow. My The third phase of Second Self was to create an incubator and do this more full time and really uh, help each other and then have like a sales rep for all these brands. Sure. That's always been the dream, but <laughs> it'll be the dream. It just won't happen anytime soon. I do want to get into kind of where some of the struggle pieces happened and, and all that. So let's take a quick break and when we come back. Let's talk about what happened after, during COVID and after. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge, so pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down, and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to BrewBids.com right now creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brew bids, and get busy making beer. All right, so welcome back. So at this point, we've grown. You've got new brands in there. You're contracting. How has the output of Second Self changed at this point? So the Pale Ale was like the flagship for a while. From 19 on, does that change into something different? Do you, Or does it struggle? Like what happens overall with the beer? Yeah, so the the Taiwi Taiwi was always the flagship. So we had the Pale Ale that became the number two brand IPA that came number three, and they all just 
collectively started shrinking. When do you, th- when do you think that started? At 18. 18 was the big difference okay. for us. That's when we saw Georgia distribution decline, and that's when I kind of started changing how we are, you know, phase two of second self, it's more contract focused. So I think a lot of that was a lot of new breweries. 2017 law passed to allow tap rooms. So a lot of breweries that were in planning went from, hey, making a 10,000 square foot production brewery, let's just make a 2,000 square foot tasting room. And that takes the attention for those consumers. So we're competing, tasting room rise, a lot of new brands. New brands are opening on distribution. We have a huge competitor within our portfolio that we're going head to head with because we had similar styles. I mean, I guess our IPAs went head to head. They're an IPA house. We were kind of everything else. And IPAs, never got a lot of credit for IPAs, but such is life. So yeah, I don't know. I couldn't really tell you. You know, that was part of my problem is I, I didn't know what was going wrong. You know, I actually got some money and, and hired a marketing company to help me kind of figure this out. And they basically said, we th- see you're doing everything right. We don't understand why. You can spend more money on advertising. That's really the best bet. And so we started just spending more on social media ads and everything. And it kind of helped with marketing. Yeah, you know, I, I have a mentor and who helps me with marketing and asked him, you know, how do I know which thing is working? His response was, if you had, you'd be a billionaire because that's how marketing works. You just have to <laughs> spend money and then <laughs> turn one thing off and turn one thing on and just see. <laughs> well, I remember um, the newspaper ad people told me that you basically have to run an ad in the newspaper for a minimum of six months every single week to get any traction yeah. on it. And I'm like, in other words, you're telling me it doesn't fucking work. Like, <laughs> you can't. Yeah, and then, you know, the, on the social media side, I was running that for the most part until 2017 or so. I finally started outsourcing it just because I was like, I, I couldn't keep up with how algorithms were working on top of running a business. So I started someone here to do it. We outsourced to a company. That was bad. Kind of insourced it again. Outsourced, kind of went back and forth. Basically, like, it'd be good for a little bit. It'd go down. We change, it'd go up, and it'd go down. So... I'm still not sure how it all works. Well, they change it so much too. I think the KPIs become the issue on those that at the end of the day, you can get the likes, you can get the followers, you can even get people commenting and interacting, but it doesn't necessarily mean they come to your tasting room. And at the end of the day, all you give a shit about is your revenue and it's harder to track. Yeah. I mean, we had more followers and people around us and yet our tasting room had a third of the people. I couldn't find a good correlation. So I came from an analytics background. So like I have to see something to keep going down that path. Yeah, I think there's not enough of that in the industry. So it's uh, important. At some point, data points are all that matters. And the soft thing of like, I'm popular. Who gives a shit if you can't pay your light bill? Yeah. (laughs) But so obviously, you've added a lot of complexity with the different brands you're having, the contract brewing. You've now got a tasting room where you didn't really before. Did that make it harder to manage and or to like really see profitability? Or how were you able to manage all of that and still know if you were doing well? Yeah, I mean, analytics background. So, you know, the a good accountant a good, had a good bookkeeper that kept everything up to date. So I was looking at sales numbers every week, distribution-wise. I was looking at tasting room numbers every week. Part of the disagreement I would have with our distributors is that they would look at things on a quarter basis. I'm looking at things on a weekly basis. Like, oh, quarter to quarter, you're, up, you're, up, you're up, you know, about on par with other people. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm having these huge swings that are killing my cash flow. They, they don't understand that because they move at a glacier pace and I move at a brewery pace. So yeah, we, we would make changes, you know, cut some things where we have to consolidate some staff if we needed to. You know, it's a brewery, so everyone wore a lot of hats. I think we had a great team. I gave them a lot of freedom and I trusted them. And I think that's that's a big part of this. People that are still with us now, uh, even though we're we've announced that we're closing, 
want to be here until I can no longer pay them. Uh, or even after that, they've worked when I couldn't pay them because they just, they trust me and they trust, they know what we're doing and they believe in us. I love my team, just to say it that way. I had a great tasting room manager who was with us for six years. You know, she was, um, started as a bartender, worked her way up, kind of ran the tasting room without any, without any mean having to really do anything outside of let's coordinate with back of house and get some beer releases and kind of big strategic thinking. You mentioned the tasting room. So more and more over the last few years, that seems to be what industry overall, definitely Brewer Association, the publications all say that, you know, the next wave is going to be all brew pubs, all on premise, and that's where you're going to make your money. You mentioned that you felt like you had less traffic than other breweries. What, what were the struggles in the tasting room for you? People in the door. We found that in 20. 20- 20, we actually used the downtime in the pandemic to do a couple of things. One of them, we did some market research to figure out who our consumers were and why they were coming in and why they weren't. So in general, people who came here came back often, but we weren't getting enough new people in the door. And that's the struggle. Like, how do you get someone new in the door? We weren't allowed signage at the main street. Hmm. We weren't allowed on our building, just a little like placard out front and then the window glass. We couldn't afford big signage like billboards or anything like that. But yeah, just getting getting people in the building is, was always our struggle. So what do you think worked for the other breweries? You said that you know they had more traffic than you. What, any ideas why? Yeah, so the, the ones around, so we became kind of the center of what became the brewery district of Atlanta. So when we moved in here, we were the third brewery. Now there's nine hmm. within two miles where we are. Most of the other ones have giant billboards. <laughs> around here or you drive by their building and it's just painted with their logo on the side there's a really busy street that we're perpendicular to thousands of people go by there every day but people just don't know we're here one of those questions i always when you know the numbers of the other breweries do you think those guys have billboards and more expensive signage because they're more successful or they're just investing more trying to get the attention you only ask so much without getting rude (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> True. Yeah. Okay. You see that a lot where like the, some of the guys that are just investing tons of money, like they're not more profitable and it makes it harder for the people who sort of understand the numbers. So I dealt with that a lot where certain breweries don't have a profit incentive. So they're willing to lose money at retail or to yeah. spend the money. And, you know, the owner is just some rich guy who's just, you know, dumping water rights, you know, money that he needs, he needs something. Anyways, it's a loss leader on purpose. And so it's a, really a struggle to compete with that because if you're trying to make a profit, was one of the reasons I said, fuck this, I'm out, was I was saying, I'm not going to compete against people who don't want to try to make money. Yeah. And I, there's definitely that around here too. And then, you know, the the fact that these breweries opened posts, uh, direct-to-consumer sales. So they they, they built, mm. the plan was make money in your tasting room. So the tasting room is sexier than ours. All of them have better sexier tasting rooms. I think ours is different and fun and cool, but like it's not hip and neat. Uh, we don't have Instagram girl wings, like the you know, big picture that we all have. Just a different model. And you know, had I opened when they opened, it would be different here too. We talked about some different struggles that you faced, but you know, in my business specifically, there were, I think I said five or six just catastrophes where I was like, man, looking back, I probably should have walked away. Did you have any of those sort of just catastrophic moments where like you and Chris are just sitting up pouring over the numbers and like, what the fuck are we going to do? And uh, maybe you should have closed then or whatever. The biggest one that stands out was in COVID. We wish we just closed then instead of taking more money and trying to make it work and then just having to close afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's the big one. In 2018, 19, in one month, we had a 60% drop in our distribution sales with our Georgia distribution company. For the and state. that's what I was for the state. Yeah. Okay. 
that's when the competitive brewery opened. That's when Triforce declined. It was all in one month. I was like this. And that's when I was like, I need to start finding another revenue stream. That's when I started working on hard seltzers. Oh, I led to Cirrus was that, that month. And so that was like, this model's broken. We have to find another way. So that was, that was not doom and gloom. But that's when I knew things were going to get bad before they got better. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I experienced similar where they kept having to pivot the business model. And like you said, mm-hmm. had you opened with more of a direct-to-consumer mentality in a better tasting room, it would be different. So I actually faced the same thing. So let's talk about this decision to finally close. And, and obviously, one of the options is go back to your investors and build the most beautiful fucking tasting room in the entire city of Atlanta and or the country, the world, right? And pivot to this new model. And this is exactly what I did. And I said, I'm not going to do that. So why did you decide not to do that? I tried. (laughs) I went to our investors. They're like, listen, we we have a couple options. This is one of them. And all of them said, we're not putting any more money in. Like we put in all we're comfortable putting in. If you're at this close of a closed decision, there's no reason to do this because part of it too, and why I wish we just closed three years ago is we took on more debt during the pandemic. We took a disaster loan that kept us going and did do a lot, kept people employed. I'm happy for it. I'm glad we did it. But at the end now, it's just more debt that I now have to deal with. You know, we're already on the edge of not making money every month and you add another two grand and it's like that's just enough to not make any money ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the ultimate decision was, you know, we're mostly contract. So four of our six largest contractees either closed or moved to different co-packer in the past six months. 60% of our revenue disappeared in March. So we had a, a new contract starting in what was supposed to be January that was going to make up that difference. Signed contract, big numbers, had money in the bank, so we were told, but they were never able to get us the money to make products. Really? So never were able to do that. So then it's just cutting into cash flow and just completely so, yeah. fucking so everybody. We, yeah. So, so with that coming, I was like, okay, brewery that's been with us for years, who's outgrown us, instead of trying to fight for that, I was like, okay, well, we have this other one coming. That'll make up the difference here. So we'll be okay. Contract was signed. We had a deposit in hand. Didn't see a reason why the rest of it wasn't coming, and it still hasn't come to this day. Hmm. Well, that sucks. So... What were the conversations like between you and Chris? Are you guys been on the same page the whole time? Did he want to fight to keep it open? Or I've been the fighter of the two of us. Yeah. So you know, it's it, the being closer to the brand branding. I want to keep it going. But at the end of the day, Second Self was only 15, 20% of what we were doing. You know, not what it used to be. Not Definitely not what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be like the main thing here. I wanted it to be why people came here to, to see it. But, but it wasn't. So, you know... I, Again, I'm kind of the eternal optimist, so I will keep fighting, keep finding new things. And I did. I even picked up new contracts, you know, while this was all happening, all tiny contracts. I was like, hey, let's anything that helps. So, you know, things that we didn't want to do before, we were doing them anyway. Um, lower profit, lower volume things, but, you know, whatever I could do until I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> so, uh, Obviously, you expanded to new markets. Uh, have you looked at, you know, other states or is that even, would that have made a difference or moved the needle much to go to Minnesota or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I mean, if you can't win your brand in your home state, how are you going to really do it somewhere else? That was my problem. Plus we had the money to put an army of sales team there, plus the marketing dollars to do it and promote it. 
we couldn't make it work. So yeah. we couldn't get more money from our investors for marketing. Can't raise debt for marketing. It doesn't work. I have no money. So <laughs> that was kind of where I, where I ended up. Is that So one avenue we actually looked at was closing the brand second self and reopening as something else because that would actually get us out from underneath our distributor. But George is a franchise law state, and so they own the rights for second self, but not for Jason's beer company. It's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously it wasn't gonna be that. We had a couple in mind, but that was the plan. Like if we actually hit our revenue number for the year, we were gonna just go dark with second self and open up something different. New beer lineup, new branding. Just like start as Nuco with a new distributor. So obviously that was one of the issues at the big drop in 18 with the new brand that came in. Did you guys look at switching distributors? Because yeah. I love to shit on distributors. So we can talk a little bit about how. Oh, they- yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah, this is fun. So like in 2020 with everything else going on, you know, they said that they no longer want to carry second self because we weren't hitting the volume numbers they wanted. We weren't hitting the volume numbers they wanted because we, they weren't promoting us. So Leo's chicken and egg situation. So I got that call, which I said, great, I've asked to leave multiple times. Let's do this. So within three weeks, I had another distributor lined up. I had two who were interested. I was like, great, you got to start talking. I'll sign the paperwork. We'll start the new year with a new distributor. Awesome. So a new distributor comes in and goes, hey, they're asking for a bunch of money. They didn't tell you about this? I was like, no, didn't mention a word to me about asking for money. Don't know why they would because our brand's essentially worthless. I mean, we were doing 30% of what we used to do with them, maybe even less at that time. Mm-hmm. And so kind of went back and forth. They gave me the number. I went to our investors like, hey, we have a one-time chance to get out of these guys. Here's what they're asking for. And so got a tentative yes. If you get them to agree, we'll do it. Went to the distributor said, hey, okay, we got the money. And they said, well, we need twice that. I was like, that's not what you said. <laughs> did they have a justification for that at that point? Did they say, that, like, oh, we didn't look I at the numbers? Yeah, to be honest, we owed them some keg deposits. We had a decent AR with them. So they wanted all that payback and more. And I was like, well, I mean, they're going to, the new distributor was going to take that those kegs and that deposit would move. Yeah. And so they you know, can technically pay like, you. Yeah, you'll get. And so there's a lot of that. So that partially my fault too for that letting that grow high. I'll, I'll own that. So the new number was 2x. I was like, all right, well, I talked to the new distributor with our investors and them. We had a tentative agreement to make that work. And then it became 2x again. So it was 4x the original ask. And I was like, well, you don't want to let us go. Like, that's what this is. I was like, I even agreed. I said, I will sign something, say I'm not going to say anything bad about you forever. Like, you can tell me your story. That'll be my story if you just let it go. That whole process was like six to nine months. And this was 2020, you said? Yeah, into 2020. So they They said, pay us all this money back and and some to get let go, even though our sales were nothing, like decimated. At this point, they weren't ordering from you anymore? Oh, they were ordering. Sorry. But like, they weren't ordering a lot. At least in Georgia, the breweries here during COVID, the ones who had grocery presents did great. The ones like us with independent retail presence did not. So our distributor is mostly a, a grocery distributor. They have 80% of the grocery wine, 50% of the, the beer shelf. That's what they focused on. So we had one skew in grocery, not a big priority for them. And so that's what they said. They want to focus on brands who had grocery presence. That's why I was like, yeah, that's not us. So let us go. Then they wouldn't let you go, basically. They were yeah. ordering just the minimum amount they put they could. Mm-hmm. Are they your distributor to this day? <laughs> Still are. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not really. But at that time, so during that nine months we negotiated, they also limited the number of SKUs to eight. So that includes kegs. So tight wheat, oh. three SKU, can, half barrel, six still. And so we went from like seasonal a month, always having something new to you get eight 
different pallets, basically, in our warehouse, and that's it. And we've managed their inventory the entire time. They never placed orders. We would go into their inventory system, see what they were low on, do the calculation for days of inventory, say, hey, this is how much you need this week. They would say, cool, and then they would send it. And so now <laughs> we had to change it so we only could send three brands, maybe four. So that's what really started changing the whole skew markup layout because we basically had we had our wheat, we had our pale ale, and IPA, and that was all we could have. And so we have to take out one of them to put a seasonal out there. And then that became hard because people were like, well, this has been a year round. Now, why is your pale ale a seasonal? It became a fight with customers and the distributor and us. Yeah, you just really confused the market and the buyers. And you had a layer of complexity to it. And with 10,000 breweries. It became a brewing problem, too, because it was we're trying to keep some of these year-round. Because our other markets, South Carolina and Alabama, kept those things year-round and mm. kept the season. They were willing but to like, buy whatever. And so, you, yeah, you want to Yeah, they'll buy whatever. And so we couldn't make... So it became a, how much of each do we make, who we send where. So it just became a real hard production problem for us. Hmm. And so you mentioned earlier that you, if you couldn't win your home market, there's no point in expanding. And obviously the distributor is not helping you win your home market. How much of a difference do you think it would have made if you had switched to a distributor with second self and as opposed to bank, bankrupting that, essentially moving on? Uh, I think it made a world of difference. You know, we, the ones we talked to, one was a small boutique distributor. We would have been kind of the bigger one, the biggest brand they had. You know, they said that we would never hit our 2018 numbers with them. And that was fine. You know, we had multiple revenue streams. We had multiple states. We didn't need them to hit those numbers. We just needed something consistent. And I wanted to put out unique things. Because the other problem that's happening is the production staff, they're getting bored. They're only brewing three second self beers. They're brewing a ton of other beers from other brands. They're just like, didn't have pride and all this cool stuff that, because we used to be, the team made the beers. And I promoted that. When Austin made a new beer, the world knew Austin made this. It wasn't a Jason creation. It was Austin. Like, I like making sure you give credit where credit is due. And we weren't doing that. Like, so we weren't able to do cool stuff anymore. So if you had had a better distributor, the whole story would have been different or the ending. Maybe not have been. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, it wouldn't be probably light years different, but I mean, we wouldn't be closing, I don't think, because the, distri the other distributor we talked to was, you know, another large statewide distributor who had a brand that traditionally were just not craft focused, but they got a brand who was releasing a new SKU every week. Hmm. And they're like, this is a lot, but we see how this makes money. So when I was like, yeah, we just want to do one a month, we're like, that's great. Could you do more? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll do as much as you want. Like, I love making new stuff. That sounds great. And so they were seeing the change in the consumer and looking for brands that can do that. And that's where I was like, this could be a great fit because this is what we've always wanted to do, smaller but frequent releases. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how we're ending it. I know we've got like a week or so and, and until you're going to be closing up shop and just kind of see how that looks and how that feels. And so let's... Take a quick break. Okay. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, 
you'll get a notification immediately. Go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, the fourth and final segment, let's talk about how this actually is going to go down. So I guess you said Chris was fighting against you. You were trying to keep it. And you finally got convinced when, like, how did that go down? How'd that feel? And, and what, what'd you do next? Yeah. So the big thing I was holding on to was that new contract mm-hmm. who said that they were going to start it. And so like, I was in constant communication with them and it was pretty much every week, Hey, the money's coming this week. And I was like, okay, the money's coming this week. Kept my hopes up, kept my hopes up. But you know, it's been 10 weeks of that and it hasn't come. Being the eternal optimist, I kept trying to do that. Ultimately, the final straw is that we try to hold on to some of the larger contracts, and it was nebulous if they were moving somewhere else, but once it was confirmed, I was like, there's no way I can make up this revenue gap. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and you know, so I laid off this hourly full-time staff six weeks ago, basically saying, you know, it was a Friday, took everyone, we catered food in, did a bottle share, told them what was going on. And, you know, the idea was furloughed for two weeks while I kind of straightened things out. And But being very honest, like, here's where we are. Here's why we got here. Here's the plan. And then in communication with them during those two weeks, and several of them were like, I don't want to go anywhere else. So I'm just going to take this time and have fun. One moved on right away. And I gave them a referral. <laughs> and then it was like two, three, I guess, Almost four weeks ago, I left the salary staff kind of know, like, this is probably going to be it, guys. And that's once I started saying it out loud, like, because I have to give them time to figure out their lives, that, that's when it kind of just kept sinking in more and more to me. And then this past month, our Georgia distributor did less than $1,000 worth of business. I was like, this is nothing. Nothing, guys. <laughs> yeah, at that point, so, they're just not trying. Yeah. Oh, and, and they cut us down to only one brand so only Tywheat three skews. The last, yeah. three skews can't have a seasonal can't have another core so I was like I, I can't can't do this guys so it sounded like the decision was sort of made for you in a way which is good but yeah you, I'm sure you still it's struggle. good and bad yeah it, it I do of course you know I want to see it work but you know at the end of the day I have to you know what happened during this time too is I became a dad three years ago and so Honestly, that lens has made my decision very different. You know, I probably could have, would have kept fighting a little longer had I not had that in my back of my head. How does that so, exactly change it for you? Well, lots of things. So, you know, I locked out. I kept in good communication with my former manager at my former job. And so recently, she had a birthday. I reached out like, hey, how you doing? Make sure everything's good. And then she checked in and, you know, what, what was going on and, and, and said there's an opening in her organization and so it kind of worked like i knew i had to leave i knew i knew this was coming and so i had to do that and get a constant paycheck 
And so, and that happened a couple months ago. And so it made it a little easier for me to kind of mentally transition out and, you know, having that consistent paycheck. again. But once it happened, I still kept putting money in. Like, hey, I am making money again now. I can put money back in the brewery. And I was just like, when's this going to end? It's like, it almost felt like a gambling problem where I was like, just just a little bit more and we're going to make it, guys. This time, we're going to do it. It kept going until I couldn't do it anymore. For me, the family piece became where money doesn't buy happiness or whatever. But there came a point where it's just like the stress. Uh, my, you know, my wife and I definitely argued about the brewery. And I can tell you, as it goes to Christmas future, two years later, it was the smartest thing I ever did. <laughs> so, I definitely, yeah. I, I think you'll be happier. And obviously you're always going to miss the brewery and miss the creativity, especially with the culinary background. You like to make new shit, push the envelope, but you can do that in other ways. Yeah. And I, I like going out and eating good shit too. So like, like something I can't, I haven't been able to do in like three years because can't afford it. Yeah. And part of it is, um, yeah, I'm like an analyst by nature. So whenever I am at times of flux, I will build the spreadsheet. And so I literally was like, Here's my cash flow now. If I put money in, how much I could put money in. And like, if we go bankrupt, what that means. And it was like, what's the tipping point? And I found it. And I was like, you know what? There's no better future for me and my family than me closing. Oh, I agree. So at the end, like, I can just keep shoveling money in and then close probably. Or, or like worst, best case scenario, I stay up until next May and mm-hmm. then I'm screwed. You, the rent goes up. you know, to move a brewery, half a million dollars. And then if we're going to move... I don't want to be a production brewery, probably. Maybe a tasting room. So, like, well, and real estate's gone up everywhere. So, it's not like you're going to be able to go find your same rent. Yeah, it's not going to be cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing is, go smaller. You guys did, everyone kind of has a different opinion on this. Um, when you're going to close, some people don't want to talk about it. They just literally stop posting on Instagram and don't make beer anymore. Yeah. A few people have done kind of a party and, and, and you guys have some plans for next week. How, how did that conversation go? Did, did you guys consider just riding off from the sunset or did you always want to do a last hurrah? I, I, um, when other breweries have closed and just said, Hey, we're closed. It's always been a conversation here of how, you know, that, you know, you don't get closure. The, the people, the consumers don't get closure. Uh, and it's just a lot of employees find out when the public finds out. Mm-hmm. And that was something I really, really didn't want. That's why I sat down with the hourly people early or everyone. I mean, the top people were there, but I've been in very good communication with what's happening over the past two or three months. So I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to be transparent so they knew and could trust what we were doing. And to me, it's providing some closure for me and for everyone else. So I almost see our closing like a wake in Latin culture and Cuban. So when someone passes, you throw a big party, you celebrate their life, you celebrate the good memories you have. And that's that I've always loved more than kind of mourning, uh, you know, a traditional church kind of like over the casket throwing stuff in. Yeah. I wanted to have a, at least a small runway where we as the employees and consumers and our vendors and just regulars can come and just have one last beer, share some memories and have a good time. I think it's the way to do it. I think it's cooler to do it that way. Like you mentioned, it gives you opportunity to kind of remember some of the great moments. Give me an example of one of the memories you'll take forever. That's one of your favorite memories of the owning a brewery. I mean, it's, it's going to be a pretty easy one. I got the first private event we did in our new tasting room was my wedding. Oh, really? That's cool. So it's going to be like, that's part of it too. Like I'm saying goodbye to the space that I built. And that was the pressure of building that space because I had a hard date for a wedding. <laughs> This thing has to be open and running by this date. And we, we did it by like two months, so we had plenty of time. But yeah, that's going to be one of the best things there. I mean, the beer launches that we've, we've done, we've had celebrities in here. Like there's there's been 
just fun moment. We did some fundraisers. There's a ton of memories, but I mean, that will, that will never, nothing will, will overshadow getting, having my reception here. Yeah, no, that's cool. So at least you had a bunch of pictures so you can keep those. Yeah. I had thousands and thousands of pictures. <laughs> One of those questions too, for, I like to ask people, since now you're looking at closing, you're looking at the financial piece of what you're going to be liable for and like how it's going to yeah. work. Was there anything that you're seeing or learning now that when you opened, you maybe should have done differently to protect yourself at, at this? Obviously you're filing bankruptcy, whatever, how are that's going to look, but yeah, I, I, um, not necessarily intentional, but it worked out well for me. We actually, my wife and I, we, we bought a house and in 2018, we renovated that house. And so in 2018, we had to get a loan to do that. And because the brewery was losing money that year, I had to be taken off the loan and the mortgage. So that actually protects me now because mm. I don't own a home. <laughs> so in a way, the brewery saved me from that. So something to think about, you know, when you're starting a small business, not having stuff in your name is, could be important. Because you have an SBA loan, right? Is what you're on the business? Yeah. Those SBA guys, loan and Chris and I have personal guarantees on it. Those guys same, are same with the, they're notorious for getting everything from your third born kid to, yeah, blood samples. Yeah. yeah they can be pretty aggressive. So the fact that I don't own anything is a, a good thing in yeah. this case. So I had a, a buddy of mine that has an SBA loan still. He had it on his his uh, business. I don't know if he wants me to share, so I won't say it yet. So he had it on his business. He was a production guy too. And, and when they closed, they essentially refinanced that debt. They still had to pay for it. So is SBA kind of basically liquidate all of your stuff and then put that towards it and then you're just liable for what's left? Yeah. So that's uh, what we have to figure that out. That's kind of where we're at. Yeah. So what will happen is they'll take control of everything and have to sell it. We've offered to help them do that and help them get more money. They have said no. Maybe they'll change their mind once they see how much equipment's going for an auction. Um, but yeah, so at the end of the day, they sell everything they can. Loan minus equipment equals what's owed. And then either I say I'll pay for half or I you can go chapter seven and say I'm not paying any of it. So given its amount, I'm weighing the two of them. Yeah, that's not an easy choice either way. So I, I get it. Again, I made a spreadsheet for that. So basically... <laughs> I know what the the number is that I'm, I'd be willing to pay. And then if it's over that, you know, because the decision is you can be broke without credit or just have no credit for longer. So, yeah, uh, again, I have a home I can live in. I have a car. I have a lovely family. My wife has great credit, which is always good to keep that. If you that's another piece of advice. I mean, I know not everyone can get married, but having very supportive wives has been very important for Chris and I. And, and, you know, in times where we don't get a paycheck, we have to rely on that one income for a little bit. So it's, that's been, you know, I've always said having a partner is good in this situation because doing this business solo is very hard. So having, I can't speak highly enough for my business partner, Chris, who's helped me through so many things. And then we have our support people as well, being our wives and our family. So, so that's some advice too. I have a good support network because you will face things that you never thought you will face and you won't know how to deal with them. And so you have to have people to help you. you yeah. Never be too proud to ask for help. Well, and that stress between the husband and wife in those situations, if you're not, if either of you aren't supportive, it's, it's just going to break the, the thing apart. So that's, I think for me, especially in my experience, it's a win that you make it through happy and have a kid and a wife still. So, you know, that, yeah. that's the win regardless of what happens Absolutely. financially. Absolutely. Big question. We talked around a bunch of different 
kind of scenarios and options and thoughts. You know, obviously, if we could clear the slate completely with the brewing industry where it is today in the United States and in Atlanta specifically, would you open today a brewery? And if so, what would you do differently? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, but that's where I am today. You know, I guess the question for the first time or a second time, that might make a difference. Well, knowing what you know now, right? Like, would would you do you see an opportunity today that maybe is different, better or equal to the yeah. opportunity you saw or team when you open? Yeah. So if you were to open one today, I would find a place that is high traffic and just open up a tasting room that you and a friend or whatever can run. We keep your overhead really low make a lot of money per pint and just have fun, keep it up, mix it up. The production, small production model, do not. I would not pursue. And I would not recommend anyone to pursue. I think what needs to happen is breweries like us, what we are doing, having a central hub for contracting. And so like smaller production breweries can all just be in one place. I tried setting that up with some other breweries. No one was interested. I think that's the only way small production breweries are going to work is if it's holiday. Why do you think no one was interested based on the experience, the understanding of what you have? Like, why would they say that? Your people in general, while I love them, are very proud people. And they don't like sharing sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It's not not the model they want. Especially, you know, you're used to making X subcase and now you're making X minus 30%. But, you know, to me, you're not doing the work. Part of the problem that we had with a lot of our contract clients is that they're super concerned with variable price. Um, They just say, oh, this costs a lot. But they don't think of the alternative. Like if you were to have your own space, yeah, your variable cost would be lower, but your fixed cost is going to be extremely high. Mm-hmm. This is not equipment. It doesn't come for free. Something that I have to explain to a lot of startups because they look at variable, 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 but they don't think about rent. And because we factor that into our contract price, we have an overhead line that's just, this is what it costs to run this business. And if we, we evaluate every six months, if we, making more product that overhead goes down actually do you think that there's anything that the brewers association could have done to help educate either in the beginning and or help towards the end based on all their vast expertise that might have prevented you getting to this point i don't know i mean their their job is to promote craft beer and so they're gonna always promote craft beer and i i agree with that that's their mission that's their purpose there are a lot of resources there that talk about profitability you know by the end of the day anyone starting their own business has to be a little stubborn because a lot of people are going to tell you no so it's a skill that we all have you know sometimes you have to work with blinders on but be all the ba can do now is just say hey guys look out for these flags but you know again their business is to promote craft beer and that's what they keep doing so you don't think they have a responsibility at all just being the kind of microphone of the industry and that's no right answer. I'm just curious your opinion. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't see what they would do. Say, hey, don't don't open breweries, guys. Hey, craft beer, slow down. I mean, that doesn't seem like a good message. I don't know what their exact mission is as a nonprofit, but it's got to be advancing craft beer to some degree. Well, I consider that to be my job then. And in the vacuum, I'm going to fill that with me saying those things. Well, I, I think these conversations need to happen more because people only see the success stories. You know, you see like small, like I'll see small breweries from Maine on the shelf here. I'm like, wow, these guys must be doing great. But I mean, it might not be. They might be struggling and like, oh, I got to send a pallet to Georgia because <laughs> I get to I can't sell it in Maine, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I know that as an industry person, I know how this works, but a lot of people who are starting up are like, oh, well, you can just send your beer all over the place and make all sorts of money. And yeah. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe, no. maybe not. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to be large to make money on production. And that number is bigger and bigger, bigger than it ever has been because everything costs so much right now. I yeah. mean, beer really should be 20 bucks a six pack. For it sure. Be on par. It should be on par with good wine, 20 to 30 bucks to get the same thing. But 
we'll never get. I mean, not never, but not anytime soon. Well, as long as the macro products don't raise their prices enough, that's part of the issue. That's that's always the paradigm. It's the volume yeah. and the price points of the macros. Yeah. And so that- actually, I think you, you asked me earlier a point which I knew things were coming to the end. It's when my closest friends were buying Golden Road at the local grocery store. And we're like, this is great. This is a great craft brewery that is like eight dollars a six pack. I'm like, yeah, that's that's Budweiser, guys. Like, I'm like, well, it's great, and it's eight bucks. I'm like, no, I'm gonna it's do great. what I want. That is that, and ours is twelve now. So sorry, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so many people don't care. I have friends the same thing, and they still they're drinking Carbach out of Houston, and they think it's a craft brewer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, AB, but they they don't even want to know. So it is what it is. No, they don't. Yeah. It, it looks cool and crafty. It's on sale this week, so I'll get it. Since you saw the change dramatically from 14 to today, we've gone from, at that point, probably what, maybe 2,000 breweries up to 10,000. How do you think that changed the industry in all fairness? And, and I think this is a ridiculous question because people tell me all the time that the number of breweries don't matter, and I, I can't get my head around how somebody can think that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at the time, people were asking me, well, how many is too many in Atlanta? You know, and we had like nine or something like that. And, you know, I used the comparison at the time, San Diego had 200 breweries in San Diego alone, and Georgia had 35. So I was like, you know, at least we can compare that. I think it's a problem with not just beer with every industry. There's just so many choices. Like, you can just buy a new beer from a new brewery every time you go to the store and not have to circle back, almost, because there's always something new. So the the loyalty is a big thing that's different now. I'm guilty of it, too. I don't necessarily buy the same six-pack whenever I go, but that's, that's part of it, is that there's just always a choice. There's always something new. So how are you going to be so different to get that loyalty for someone? I mean, if you look at fast foods in a different category, but... For example, they used to describe frequent consumers as going three times a week. Now it's two times, two to three times a month. Even even huge brands know that people aren't coming back to them as much. And so you have to think about that too when you're creating your own brand. Full different marketing plan and like even the product lineup, like where do you go, like distribution points. And- yeah, I mean, so where, where it's working here is small towns, put a brewery in that city center, be the one, you're going to be successful. Well, I know you have to... Uh- Get off the air so you can go prep for selling all your beer next week so you can empty all those damn tanks. Yeah, I'm in my fall line cleaning today. So. <laughs> oh, fun. I do yeah. want to ask you, what do you want the legacy of Second Self to be? Like, what what do you want people to think of when they think of the brewery, you know, in, in, in the history of it? Not call Second Shelf. Start there. Um, <laughs> remembering the story. The whole story is about taking a chance and living your dream. And that's what has always been our mission from the beginning, whether it's the beers we're making, taking a chance on those, the restaurants that we bring in, the events that we do, the artists that we hire, all of that is about doing that. So take a chance, do something unique. Maybe not start a brewery in this day and age, but you know, try something, learn a new hobby, do something neat, try to expand your horizons. That's what we always try to do here. And what I hope people remember, it's just good memories. Like whether it's having our beer, like I've had multiple people write me in the past two weeks after our announcement saying, you were the beer I had at my wedding. Hmm. Like, so sad you're closing. Like, those are those are the ones that get me because I'm like, we were part of a special occasion and that's what I love. So whether it's here or having the beer out, just remember the good things. And if those who are here locally, come by and celebrate with us. Well, that's awesome. Again, I appreciate you sharing. I think there's a lot of new and different information in your story. It just sounds like maybe it's not done yet. We'll be curious to see what you do in the future but best of luck and uh, again i hope to be there one of those days at the end of your closing we'll see how that works out thanks a lot yeah you're welcome thanks so much for the time and it's such a pleasure
Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always opening to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.